Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we're going to be talking quite a bit about crypto and uh, definitely the um, guest that we have today knows a lot about it, knows uh, a little bit about as well scaling and building and exiting and, and all the above in terms of full cycle when, when doing a business. But I think I don't want to make any of you wait any longer. So let's welcome our guest today, Trevor Coverco. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Alejandro. I'm honored to be here. You have a lot of amazing guests on the show. Thank you. So, so born and raised in Toronto. So, how was life there? You know, life is was really good. It's an amazing city, very underrated. We have uh, a lot of great stuff going on. But you know, the real thing, if you're a young boy, is hockey. And we joke that you know, if you don't play hockey as a kid, you get deported. That's that's how seriously <laughs> we uh, we take <laughs> hockey in this country. So that's what I did, and that was kind of my my full time thing for kind of my young adult life from childhood all the way up to kind of early twenties. And anyone in the family that was also an entrepreneur? Uh, no, my my father uh, was in finance, but um, no no entrepreneurs, so to speak. Got it. So then let's we talk have a about lot of lawyers, though. <laughs> a lot of lawyers in the family. So kind of the opposite, if, if you ask me. That's a good thing. So definitely you want the, the important disputes. You got to win them at home. So uh, <laughs> yeah. so good stuff. Good stuff. So so in your case, obviously, you follow the um, path of, of hockey and and you made it all the way to getting drafted by the NHL. I mean, that's a, quite an accomplishment. Yeah, you know, it's it was a lot of fun, and there's nothing better than than playing for professional sports. It's just the things that I love: competition, um, camaraderie with the team, and all these things. And you know, like I said, you play from a young age, and you move away from your home at a young age. There's no um, college hockey isn't as big a thing in Canada, so you move to private club teams when you're 14, 15, 16 years old in new cities all around the country, and and uh, I loved every minute of it. And as they say, life is a sequence of events, and what really matters is that the way that you react to those events. No, and in your case, in 2005, uh, right after getting drafted, you got injured, and probably your life, you know, came crumbling. So, so how was that for you? Yeah, sometimes I joke that the coach called me in the office and he said, "Son, you're just too good. We're gonna have to send you home." <laughs> but uh, <laughs> and I'm like, "Hey, you know what? I agree. I can't argue with that." But but in reality, I got uh, some serious injuries. I got shoulder surgery. I was actually in kind of a, a random uh, car accident as well. 
So I was at a crossroads and I was kind of forced to, to reinvent myself. And looking back, it was uh, kind of a blessing in disguise because I was still young and still still able to find kind of a new purpose and mission in my life. So then what happened? Why, why going to Asia? So I, I knew, <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to do, to, to, to do next, but entrepreneurship always appealed to me. And I, I, I idolized a lot of the entrepreneurs from kind of my childhood and, and Steve Jobs and, and Jeff Bezos and these kinds of guys. And so what I did, I did what a lot of folks do when they, they want to be an entrepreneur is they apply to incubator programs. And, and we got accepted into a, one in Dalian, China, which is northeast of Beijing. And it was an amazing program. Sometimes people ask me, you know, why did you go to China? And the fake answer is because I saw this mega trend of Asia emerging. So I wanted to get there early. But the real answer is it was the only accelerator program we got into. <laughs> so we, we packed our bags up. Me and my co-founder moved to China. And that was kind of the, the beginning of my entrepreneur career. Wow. So then what happened after the accelerator? Yeah, you know, we we uh, we learned a lot. It was a really tough slog early on because we weren't doing things super efficiently. And really, what helped me, and to this day, is I discovered Y Combinator. I discovered all these amazing free resources online. I I don't even lecture people now or give people advice. I say just go to Y Combinator resources libraries, and it's just amazing content. And it would just short track a lot of the mistakes and failures I had early on. So that's something uh, I like to talk about. And, and to this day, I still use a lot of the lessons I've learned through folks over there and through the videos that, that I've watched. So let's talk about your first company. The first one, yeah, the first one that got um, acquired was a virtual reality company I, I tried on. I always like kind of new shiny technologies, and that's kind of a, a negative sometimes because I chase these objects uh, sometimes too much. But um, I tried on the DK1 for the Oculus Rift. That was the developer kit that they came out with before Facebook acquired them. And I was like enamored and smitten by this technology right away. And I said, I got to do something. So um, I called up my friend who was a property developer and we built something where we would take virtual tours of pre-construction condos, like luxury condos. And once the buyer put the headset on, they could immediately be transported to this actual um, environment that looks exactly like it's going to look when it's finished. And we actually helped sold a couple penthouses. And um, that was that was really an exciting uh, deal for me from uh Beginning it to, to selling it, it was only uh, nine or 10 months. So it was a really fun uh, exit for me. So talking about the exit, what was that point where the deal almost blew up because of a typo? <laughs> uh, my friend is going to kill me for this. But uh, uh, basically, we were in the boardroom. It was a private equity company in Canada called Griffiths Capital. And they were going to take it public because uh, they love the technology and they love the team. And at the last second, they called me into the boardroom and they said, son, I'm sorry, but the deal's off. And I said, no, we have an LOI that deals on. And he said, nope, we refuse to do business with someone who calls their company. So just for a background, the company's called Polymath Labs. That was the name of the company. That was my brilliant <laughs> name. But the problem is my, uh, my friend who I played hockey with as a kid uh, made a typo on the Articles of Incorporation and put an E instead of an A. So instead of Polymath Labs, it was Polymeth Labs. <laughs> so the, the director... The MD of this this uh, private equity fund said we we refuse to do business with someone who names their company Polymeth Lab. So it took the deal went through and uh, it took a few weeks to salvage that one. But looking back, we laugh about it. I still have that printed out on my uh, on my desk at home, Polymeth Labs uh, to this day. That's amazing. So what what was the um, what did you learn from that full cycle? Because I mean, doing the full cycle and seeing a company from nothing to exit, it's a 
it's quite an accomplishment and then also it gives you a lot of visibility so what what did it give you you know for me it was just being really efficient in the early days like i just found you know in vr you don't need typical engineers you need game designers who do like 3d modeling and shading so i just went on linkedin and i, I looked for people who had experience with unity that's kind of the engine that a lot of vr is built on to this day and and just being able to do that quickly and getting our first deals as, as fast as possible, being lean, getting product market fit as fast as we can, um, those were all the lessons I learned. The, the companies before that, I didn't have that same conviction and mindset in running a company like that, but I definitely learned just by the the, the outcome how, how much of a difference it can be when you treat your company like something that has to be done quickly and efficiently and um, experimenting as, as, as much as possible. And how old were you when you sold the company? I was in my mid twenties, and wow. uh, you know I was kind of a dinosaur these days in Silicon Valley. But uh, that was uh, that was a lot of fun in my in my twenties. So here you are in your mid twenties with some money in the pocket, and uh, you decide to start a private equity. So why private equity? I wanted to go on the other side of the table, and I was very lucky because uh, a very close friend of mine uh, named Devin uh, was was a banker in in San Francisco for Goldman Sachs, and and I convinced him to leave the company and we started a private equity fund together. And uh, the idea here was, you know, we've, we've been operators, but we want to go to the other side of the table, so to speak. Uh, that That's pretty common in Silicon Valley too. And um, the idea here was we wanted to merge cash flowing online businesses with financial engineering. So we did roll-ups of online businesses that were high yielding, high margin, high cash flow, and we would use leverage to acquire these businesses. So it was kind of like a levered buyout firm. And uh, it was a lot of fun. It was kind of merging my two passions of software and, and finance. And he focused on the finance. I focused on the software side of things. Um, and, we, and we would also manage these companies. A lot of private equity funds bring in the managers, but we actually did the management as well because we had a lot of, uh, of really good operators in our, in our uh, environment. And, um, and then, you know, we woke up one morning and uh, one, one last passion of mine is crypto. And I was very early in the crypto world in 2012. I bought my first Bitcoin on eBay, of all places. I, I don't recommend anyone doing that now. But uh, I bought a Bitcoin for 20 bucks in, uh, in 2012. Oh. And, and uh, ever since then, I was always like super interested in that space. And uh, it went up and down a lot. So I, I you know, did some other things as well. Um, but we woke up one morning running this fund and we said, hey, crypto is getting really exciting again. And it's getting validated in the real world. What if we could tokenize our fund, like the LP shares of our fund, and we could become the world's first dividend paying crypto. And this was back in, in 2015, 2016. We saw another project that tokenized a venture fund and we got inspired by that called Blockchain Capital. And, um, and that's what we did. We, uh, we tr well, at least we tried, uh, Alejandro. We tried to tokenize it. We actually failed uh, because it turns out securities laws, you know, when, when you launch an asset backed token, it's a security. And securities laws don't reconcile very well with the open and permissionless and pseudonymous nature of, of crypto. So it was impossible for us to stay compliant because unauthorized investors could, could get a hold of these coins and there's nothing that a bank or a, a regulator could do. So at that point, we pivoted and we said, hey, what if we could figure out a way to not just make it possible, but easy to launch um, asset-backed coins, to tokenize anything, stocks, bonds, derivatives, real estate, um, that was our big vision, and that's when we started my current company, Polymath, back in, in 2017. So what does it mean for the folks that are listening to tokenize something? Well, a lot of people aren't really familiar with how the sausage is made, so to speak, when it comes to Wall Street and capital markets. 
And what's scary to me is that a lot of the technology that our financial system that runs on today is extremely outdated and, and legacy technology. I mean, uh, even the DTCC, which settles trillions of dollars of transactions a month, um, they're built on cobalt code from 1980. <laughs> and I, I might be exaggerating a little bit. I'm sure they've improved. But even even uh, some of their, their teams say, yeah, we're, we're looking at, at new blockchain solutions to bring this into the modern era. Um, so there's a lot of things about the existing financial system that are complicated. There's a lot of rent seekers and middlemen taking fees. It's very opaque. And, and that didn't really sit well with me being, being a finance guy. So, so I kind of said, you know, what if we could help upgrade the current financial system to modern era distributed technology that, that we know as blockchain? Okay, very cool. So then, so then what, was the, uh, what was the next uh, piece here in the chapter? What happened after? So we, we launched uh, Polymath in, in 2018 is when the network went live. And we had a lot of fun because a lot of people really resonated with our message. And one of the unique things is when we went to do our fundraise, um, we were, first of all, we were one of the first crypto projects to register with the SEC. So, so we wanted to make sure that we kind of weren't being hypocritical and that we were following the rules because um, that's exactly what our, our mission was at, at, at Polymath. Tell us about dual unicorns. What does that mean? <laughs> so I don't know if this is mainstream yet, but I've noticed uh, there's some projects that have uh, $2 billion components to them. So Unicorn is a, is a billion dollar private company. And a dual unicorn in crypto is you have a billion dollars of equity value and a billion dollars of token value. And it's a whole nother dimension that makes running a, a crypto startup even more exciting than a traditional startup. Um, some examples of this are projects like EOS. They have a billion dollar uh, equity value and a billion dollar plus uh, crypto value. Ripple Labs, some of your listeners might have heard of them. Same thing. There's four or five of them. And, and I think it's really exciting as more and more companies can kind of hit this milestone. So in your case at Polymath, how, how do you guys make money? So the other thing about crypto is, you know, let me ask you, you know, how does Bitcoin make money? How does Ethereum make money? Um, a lot of these projects are based out of not-for-profit foundations. And what we're really doing, just like a lot of these early uh, blockchains that have been built, is we're building the infrastructure for decentralized finance and um, blockchain um, ecosystems to flourish. And, and that means, you know, every day we're doing whatever we can to, um, you know, maximize the usage of, of these protocols. And, and for us, you know, we don't really prioritize business models quite yet. It's kind of like when you build a house, you know, you can't put the scaffolding in and the furniture in until the foundation is built. And the market is so early and so young and so immature that we're kind of exclusively focused on building a sustainable blockchain right now. And in the future, we'll be working on SaaS products and other monetization on top of that. But for now, we're just focused on just um, building and distributing this blockchain. And if I, if I may say, you know, the one difference with the Polymath blockchain, which we call Polymesh, is that it's purpose-built for financial assets to tokenize. In other words, it's, it's custom-built for security tokens. All other blockchains today, including Bitcoin and Ethereum, are, are built for dApps or protocol coins. Um, and we could get into that as well. But for us, we're laser focused on migrating financial assets like stocks, bonds, derivatives, real estate over to the blockchain. And right now, there's no clear leader of, of purpose-built blockchains for this. And we're trying to fill that gap. So it's kind of like Google back in the days where they were just search and then they build the distribution and, 
and the brand and so forth, and then they introduce the ads to monetize the 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 people that they had in their ecosystem. So perhaps something like that, correct? Exactly. And then another way to look at it is, you know, right now today, uh, crypto is getting really exciting again for retail investors and institutional investors. But it's only worth about 500 billion total market cap between all tokens. Um, so Bitcoin plus Ethereum plus Ripple plus all of them, it's about you know half a trillion dollars, give or take. And that sounds like a lot, but it's actually if you zoom out to broader capital markets, that's just a rounding error, really. You know, there's some funds that have over a trillion dollars in it, and that's just one fund. So our goal is, you know, eventually to have these market caps double and triple overnight with one fund tokenizing or one company tokenizing. And we're trying to build the pieces and the infrastructure to make that possible. So can you expand a little bit more on what D5 protocols are? So again, back to kind of the house analogy, there's kind of different layers to crypto. You have layer ones, which are the blockchain protocols. So Bitcoin is a layer one protocol. Ethereum is a layer one protocol. On top of those protocols, you have decentralized applications or dApps. Uh, so that's one example of a layer two. And they live on top of these layer one protocols. So for example, Compound is a, a layer two DeFi protocol for lending that lives on top of Ethereum. Another example, another analogy here is, is iOS. So iOS would be the base layer, and then Uber and Facebook would be the applications on top of that base layer. So from an, in, from an investment thesis standpoint, you might be asking yourself, you know, where is the value going to accrue um, in these networks. And, and that's what I encourage a lot of people looking to invest in crypto to really understand. And if you look at the internet itself, I think it's a really good analogy of where crypto is today. When crypto launched, uh, sorry, when the internet launched in, you know, the 80s and 90s, it was really just a protocol, TCPIP and HTTP. And uh, a lot of the value didn't really come until infrastructure came on top of that, you know, the Cisco's and the modems and the broadband. And then and only then could applications exist. So back in 1990, it wasn't a good idea to invest in applications yet because the infrastructure wasn't there to support a Netflix and streaming and things like this. So crypto is very similar to that in the sense that we still think it's so early that we're still focusing on the base layer, the base layer protocols. And then and only then can we focus on the applications. But the good news is, is that 2020, 2021, we're seeing a lot of high performing, interesting projects like the one I just mentioned, Compound, which is a DeFi protocol living on top of a blockchain like Ethereum. And and obviously, we, as we know it now, you know, Bitcoin has uh, really increased by a mile. And before the surge that we saw, like maybe like a few years ago, was really driven by retail investors. And, and now it seems institutional. So what, what do you think has gotten those institutionals to wake up and to, and to be part of this thing? Yeah, you know, Bitcoin hit, a, hit an all-time high the other day, as of the recording here. And... I look at Bitcoin kind of like digital gold, and that's that's to me the best analogy. So gold, you know, is it sits there, it doesn't produce an income, and it its inflation is very small. I think the the total supply of gold increases about two percent every year, and Bitcoin's the exact same. It's it's not designed to be you know super high performing by design, and and it, its inflation is very small as well, about two percent, just like gold. Um, but now, you know, you're seeing, like you said, a lot of institutional demand coming into the market. And that's the difference between this bull market and the last one in 2018 is it's driven, like you said, by institutional capital. And, and the reason institutions are able to invest this time is A, because they understand it better. They've done their research. But B, the infrastructure around Bitcoin 
is much more developed. So the on-ramps, the off-ramps, the infrastructure around, you know, exchanges and custody providers and transfer agents, like all these things needed for this ecosystem, ecosystem to flourish are now live. And I could name you four or five different venture-backed companies in each one of those different categories, which is really exciting. And in your case, I mean, you've even experienced yourself the um, the nice uh, returns on, on investing. I mean, for example, like the case of Block One. I mean, what, what was that? Yeah, you know, crypto and blockchain, there's a, a completely different way to invest. It's not like traditional venture because when crypto projects launch, the, the token is liquid. But venture capital, it's not. You know, when you write a check as an angel, you, you sometimes you have to wait 10 years plus before it's liquid. In crypto, it's a lot, um, it's a lot faster. And you know, I've done some deals personally. You know, I don't do as much angel investing in crypto deals nowadays. But in the past, where um, you can invest in the equity of a crypto company, and then that company goes on to issue uh, tokens as revenue, and then that value goes on the balance sheet of of the company. And in one example of that, um, that you just mentioned, you know, uh, we invested at like a 30 or $40 million post-money valuation, and they went on to raise billions of dollars in, in token sales. And now just by the nav of the company, uh, it became a multi-billion dollar project. So there's one example of, of some of the new exciting ways you can get exposed to crypto and, and realize a lot of good returns as well. So obviously now, you know, going back to Polymath, uh, what's what's the size of the business? I mean, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything else to get a better understanding? We're, we're just over 60 employees, uh, half based in Toronto, half globally. Crypto is by nature is very distributed and, and remote. So we've been lucky with COVID here that it hasn't been too, too difficult of a transition for us. Um, we're about half engineers, half non-engineers. And in terms of the, the project itself, we've launched over 200 um, security tokens. And these have ranged from tokenizing uh, sh shares in a fund like LP shares, tokenizing a wind farm and the, the income stream gets paid in crypto to tokenizing real estate. I'm really, if you can't tell, I'm really excited about this space within crypto. I think it's going to be one of the hottest spaces next year. Um, and the reason I say that is because if you just look at this year alone, the total market cap of security tokens. So these are not like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but like asset-backed tokens, like tokenized real estate, tokenized companies. It's been doubling every month almost this year. And volumes of secondary trades on these new exchanges that support uh, licensed exchange, uh, trading has been tripling every month. Uh, so I, I think now we're, we're seeing a lot of escape velocity in this space and exponential growth. And and I think we're, we're positioned really well to take advantage of that. So one thing that I wanted to ask you is that Bitcoin really was kind of like the reaction to the meltdown back in 2008 uh, mm -hmm. and, and really in a way that was decentralized because the meltdown was to a certain degree, you know, created as a result of certain measures that the government really took into, into place. So this whole Bitcoin and, and blockchain is all about like decentralizing and not having the middlemen. But one of the things that, that was interesting to me was that when the market tumbled as a result of the COVID-19 uncertainties, I was hoping that Bitcoin, you know, would surge because it's just like gold. When the market goes down, gold goes up. But Bitcoin went kind of like in parallel with the stock market. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's a debate in our industry of kind of is Bitcoin decoupled from the S&P 500? And I will admit there's been a lot of correlation um, this year, I would probably um, attribute that to the fact that it's more risk on, risk off 
you know, crypto is still kind of a high risk investment. And, um, and that means, you know, when the economy uh, crashes or, or whatever, then you have a lot of flight to safety and, and crypto isn't quite safety yet. Although that's changing. And, and with the new version of, of blockchains coming out now called proof of stake blockchains that have different ways to mine the tokens, um, you actually get a dividend yield for holding the tokens. It's called staking rewards. So if you hold Ethereum starting next year, um, you'll be able to receive some interest on, on your ETH. And what that means, I think, is, is because you're locked up while you're getting these dividends, it's more stable and you're not going to have as much volatility. And in addition to that, you're also going to realize some good uh, yields, especially compared to the risk-free rate and treasury bonds and things like that. Do you think that that could affect the utility of the token? Absolutely. And, and you asked me earlier about DeFi and yield farming. Some of your audience might have heard of these, these things. It is really exciting and not exciting because the price of these things are going up, but exciting because the usage is going through the roof. There's hundreds of millions of dollars locked up in DeFi today, and, and that's growing every single day. Um, and, and we're really excited to see how what we've been talking about for a long time is, is starting to finally come, come true, where true utility is being realized by these blockchain networks, not just as a speculative asset. So imagine, Trevor, that you go to sleep tonight and you wake up uh, five years later. So you wake up in tremendous news. You wake up in a world where the vision of polymath is fully realized. What does that world look like? You know, one, one thing I always like to look forward to is we call, call the flippening. Uh, some people have different definitions, but that's when the market cap of security tokens eclipse the market cap of all other tokens. They're called utility tokens that don't that aren't backed by anything other than a protocol. So right now, security tokens are about $500 million with an M, $500 million in total market cap, just very, very small. The, it started at 10, 10 million this, at the beginning of this year, just to show you how fast it's growing. But, but I, I, in five years, I'm, I'm definitely seeing scenarios where um, security tokens as an asset class continue to grow and outpace the growth of Bitcoin and other assets, even though we expect those to, to grow substantially as well. And, and we see, you know, the, the real possibility with conversations we're having every day of trillions of dollars migrating to the blockchain. And to me, that, that is what uh, gets us out of bed every day. Very, very cool. So, um, so one of the things that, that I typically ask the guests that come on the show is, if you had the opportunity, Trevor, of going back in time, and maybe you had a chat with that younger Trevor that was in Asia, figuring out what kind of company you know, that Trevor was going to launch or you were going to launch. If you were able to have a chat there with that younger Trevor and give that younger Trevor one piece of business advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Do not depend on traditional school to teach you the skills you need to be successful in business. I'll say that again. Do not depend... <laughs> On traditional schools and academia to teach you the business. It's to the point, you know, I, I had a, a good education. I can't speak poorly of it, but it gets to the point where sometimes you have to unlearn, not just you have to learn new things, but you have to unlearn what you were kind of indoctrinated with uh, as a kid. So, you know, I encourage everyone to listen to podcasts, listen to deal makers, listen to people who have done it before. You can get free mentorship anytime, anywhere on demand. Um, you know, for me, it was, it was Y Combinator videos. Um, to others, it might be courses or or whatever, but uh, there's no excuses nowadays. You know, everyone has access to the same to the same knowledge, and 
Um, to me, that's where you're going to learn skills like negotiating, skills like sales. You know, they don't teach this in school, but I have to do this stuff every day now uh, with my day job. So um, that, that's what I would tell my younger self. And, you know, there's something, you know, to, to follow up on this. And I agree with you 100%. There's this thing that I, that I read today and is the following. Imagine starting your career in the 1960s. You are a graduate from college. You have zero debt. Your first job pays enough to buy a house and support a family on a single income with an undergrad degree. Now, think about starting your career today. You graduate college. You have 75000 in debt. Your first job requires four years of experience, unpaid internships, and a master's degree, and it pays $20 an hour. Maybe there's a problem here. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. And one thing to add to that, just before we wrap up, you know, blockchain and crypto is, is the most democratizing and inclusive technology you can imagine. You can raise money without even showing your face. It's all transparent code that, that dictates your, your project. And, and, and you don't just have to invest from your network or the old boys club. You can literally raise capital all over the world 24-7. And, and, and to me, um, that's empowering. And I think everyone should know that this, this is possible. And you're not just, you know, if you don't have your, your dad that knows a VC on Sand Hill Road, like that's not as, as much needed anymore if you want to build a, a, a meaningful, impactful business. I love it. So Trevor, for the people that want to reach out and say hi, what is the best way to get in touch? My social media is just my name. I think I'm the only Trevor Caverco on the planet. So at Trevor Caverco, T-R-E-V-O-R-K-O-V as in Victor, E-R-K-O. And email is Trevor at polymath.network. And finally, uh, polymath.network is, is where you can learn more about security tokens and crypto in general. Well, Trevor, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thanks, Alejandro. Appreciate it. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.